Well, as we get started in looking at God's Word this morning from Psalm 90, I want to just uh, briefly note that I made the executive decision just yesterday to spend two weeks on Psalm 90. I know, I got into it and I couldn't, I, I just knew, I was like, I'm not going to be able to say all that needs to be said about this wonderful psalm in Psalm 90, which I think, I don't know, I can't say this for the first service, because they got a healthy dose in the first service, but I, I think that spares you from the longest sermon in human history. I, I think it does. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to be a little shorter and briefer and to the point, but some of you know, this is, this is a precious psalm. Some of you have probably come to this psalm many times at various times in your life and, and have found certain phrases from this psalm, maybe lodged away in your memory, have given you great assurances. And I think there's good reason for that. But I also want to note for you, even before we read it, that this psalm, even though you've got some of the classic phrases as we read it lodged away, you, there's probably sections in here that you don't, you don't know at all. And the reason for it is that, that Moses actually speaks to us in the midst of all of the assuring and encouraging and, and words that are given to us here. He speaks some challenging words, um, some sobering uh, words to us. And I, I think actually for us to understand the, the comfort that's in Psalm 90, we've, we've got to understand the challenge and the sobriety that the Lord is offering to us. And it's out of this love when he does that. You know that when our Lord speaks hard words to us, it's because he loves us, right? It's because he, he loves us. He wants us, to, he wants us to know the truth, and he wants to speak to us the, the truth, and it comes from that heart of love. And so as we look at Psalm 90 uh, together today, I want you to just open up your heart to be encouraged, but also to receive the challenges that God may have for all of us as we look at his word together. Let's do so from Psalm 90. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight, or but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. For you as many years we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work 
of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord in heaven, we now pause as we have read this word in your presence and with these your people. And we would ask now for your Holy Spirit to come and for him to make plain to each and every one of our hearts what it is that you would have us to know. That we might know you and meet you and be through this time spent in your word, be further shaped, formed into the beautiful likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you come and meet us now in that? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this week I was, I was, either, I was either reading the news or some cultural analyst online on about some, I'm sure, very important uh, subject. Uh, when he had unfolded a number of, of facts or details about the economy currently and uh, the coronavirus and what's taking place and the looming election and how that um, has a, a way of, of casting, as it were, a bit of a cloud over where we are today all the way to November and who knows, maybe, maybe even beyond. And as he was doom and glooming a bit in his uh, prognostications about the future, he, he said to us as readers, listen folks, look at all of the Look at all the, that's happening right now. Now you do the math. You do the math. Now some of you are probably familiar with that phrase, do the math. It, it genuinely just is an idiom, an American idiom, maybe, a, maybe just a Western English idiom. I'm not sure of its, of its origin. It simply means draw the conclusion. I mean, get, gather the facts, do the math. In other words, this is going to be a mess. It's part of what he was trying to say. This is going to be really bad. <laughs> Do the math. Now, in a sense, Moses, I believe, in Psalm 90 is helping us as readers to do the math. Uh, to, to see things the way that they really are. The, the real facts from, from God's vantage point. He's calling us to, to look at God, get a glimpse at who God is. He's calling us to look at ourselves, get a real glimpse at who we are, uh, take a look at our situation and our circumstance, bring all of those into relationship with one another and do the math. <laughs> Let the reader understand. Get the right conclusion. And Moses is, in a sense, doing that prophetically for us here in Psalm 90. He's saying, I want to lead you to the right conclusion. I don't want you to fall under the wrong conclusions. I don't want you to believe something that's not true. I want you to, to embrace the truth. I believe that in the truth, you're, you have the, the, the best grip on reality. Now, as I'm talking about math, some of you may be, especially you students in here, a little bit disturbed by the use of math in the middle of the summer, for goodness sakes. Um, you're not, you, don't get to, you don't have to dust your math books off for another month or, or, or so. Well, I, I don't want to get you worried. We're not going to do any heavy-handed mathematical calculation in the context of the sermon, but we are going to do some math together. But the figures that we're going to use are going to be truth. And the figures that we use regarding truth are going to lead us to an answer. 
that is a kind of solution, but, but that solution, I'll just warn you ahead of time, really, really is like higher level math. What do I, what do I mean? That solution only, only brings us into a, a more complex problem. You know, that's, that's the problem with math. That's why I've never liked it. You come to the end of one conclusion and there's just, there's more to do. There's more to do. In a, in a sense, Psalm 90 is going to lead us to some conclusion. It's going to be more complex as we go along. But in those complexities, it's, it's beginning to usher us into what I think is Moses' heart. That we would get a heart of wisdom. We would have a heart of wisdom. We'd be able to see things for the ways in which they really are. I want to look at four figures of truth with you. Four figures of truth. And then I want to look at just the beginning of the solution or the answer to the problem. Now, the problem is, of course, the problem of life. The figures of truth are going to speak to the realities of the problem of life. Really, your most fundamental problem, my most fundamental problem. And the answer at the end is just the beginning. Remember, I'm coming back next week. I'm coming back next week, and we'll look at the solution in a fuller level. But I, I promise you, just the beginning of the solution is enough of a solution to give us a great encouragement as we consider the problems that we face in the midst of life. Well, I want to look with you first at this first figure of truth. The first figure of truth that Moses gives to us here in Psalm 90 is the truth about the eternal creator God. The eternal creator God. Notice there in verse 1 and 2 of Psalm 90. Moses writes, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth. Wherever you formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. But the first thing Moses is saying to you is he's saying, as you do the, the, the calculus, the calculations of the problems in, in life, don't start with the problems, start with God. Don't you just start with God. You've got to get a clear vision of who he is before you get into all of the, the messiness of life and the complexities of life. Oh, we're going to get there. But I want to start with a vision of God. You've got to grasp who he is. And notice how he describes him here in this passage. He describes him as eternal. Before the mountains were present, before the forming of the earth, from everlasting to everlasting. He's presenting to us a God who is timeless, who is outside of time. He is an eternal God. But, but not just that, he gives to us an, an eternal creator God, right? He's the one who brought forth those mountains and formed the earth. In fact, the metaphor he's using there is the metaphor of delivery, of like a pregnancy. He brought it forth. He is the origin or the catalyst by which all of creation came into being. He says, I want you to know this God. I want you to know this God, the first figure of truth that you need to bring into the calculations regarding the, the major problem of life, the most significant problem that any of us face is you've got to have a clear vision of who this God is. He is an eternal and creator God. But there's a second thing that he teaches us. He teaches us that this second figure of truth is also important and it concerns ourselves. He says that we are mortal creatures of men. That's what we are. We are mortal creatures of men. Now you just, you see that glimpse there in verse 3. We'll come back to this verse a couple of different times in, 
in the message. But notice verse 3, you return man to the dust and say, return, O children of man. So he, he, he gives us a picture of man here. And notice the, the language that he uses to describe him. It's the language of Genesis 2. Adam being formed from the dust of the earth, being fashioned by God from the earth. Now, if Moses here is writing Psalm 90, and there's reason, obviously, to believe so with the inscription that's given to us here, Moses is also the writer of the first five books of the Old Testament, which means that that Genesis 2 and 3 is alluding to, he knows personally because he actually was the writer uh, by which those words came about. And so he's echoing back to the creation story. Notice as he talks about the origins of man, they're radically different than the origins of God. That's part of the math he wants you to do. To, to actually get a glimpse into the origins of God, you've got to go before the mountains and before the earth. He's from everlasting to everlasting. He's existed long before anything else existed. But to you and to me, well, we have birthdays. We have beginning points. Notice, not just the origin stories between man and God are different, but the substances of which man and God are made of are, are completely different as well. God is not of the earth, we are of the earth. He is, as the scripture describes, spirit and eternal. All of what is material actually comes from him. We are earthlings. We are those who are formed of dust. Now in saying it that way, he's wanting you to do a little math. He's wanting you to realize that the difference between you and God is not merely a difference of degree but a difference of kind. It's a difference of kind. That in one way of speaking, now I'll back off of this in a minute, but hear me out. In one way of speaking, we're nothing like God. He's from everlasting to everlasting. He's not of the earth. You, however, have birthdays and are of the earth. And in fact, as he alludes to here in verse 3, you actually have a death day. That's part of what he's, he's noting here, that God has Ordered the day of your death, return, O dust, to the earth. He's telling us that we are qualitatively different beings from that which is of God. And here's the wisdom of doing the math in, that two, in those two figures. Those two figures help us lodge away in our minds and hearts that God is much greater than we are. He is in an exalted state. That's of eternal proportions. We, however, are in a humble state in relationship to Him. It puts us in perspective. It puts, it puts our situation with God in perspective. Things begin to fall into order. You think about it this week, right? One of the ways you got yourself into trouble this week is the way I get myself into trouble every week is I think that I'm really important. And I'm consumed with the things of my life. And I'm wondering why God is not so interested in the things of my life and, and what I'm thinking about my life. And then you begin to realize, wait, I'm just one of billions of people on the earth. And I'm just this small little, little person in middle Tennessee in a mar much larger story of a God who's existed from all eternity. Why is it I thought that my life was so big, so important? I had such an exalted sense of myself. And, and, and guess what? Rarely thought of God. That's the problem, right? That's where sin gets us. Gets us normally when we think that God is small and we are big. 
And notice what Moses is doing. He's orienting our perspective. He's saying, listen, folks, do the math. God is great. He is exalted. He's not of the earth. He is eternal. But you, you're made of dust. You're an earthling. You're a mortal creature. He's doing what John Calvin actually says we must do if we want to ever experience true wisdom. The opening statement in the Institutes of Christian Religion, the magnum opus of John Calvin, reads this way. Nearly all the wisdom that we possess, nearly all of the wisdom that we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. That's what Moses is doing here, isn't he? The knowledge of God. When we have a clear knowledge of God, we begin to get a clear knowledge of ourselves. Things begin to come into order. Now, these are the first two figures of truth that we must calculate. And I hope as we're moving through these figures that you're seeing an exalted God and you're seeing a humbled uh, man. Because what this implies by these two calculations, necessarily so, is that man is in submission to the authority and the power of God. Man is in submission to the authority and the power of God. Why? Well, we've come from Him. Our existence is bound up in Him. He is the one that's created us. He's the one that's fashioned us. He's greater and stronger and eternal than our Creator God. We are under His power and authority. It works the same way, right, in a family. Why is it that children are under the authority of their parents? Well, they come forth from their parents. They come forth from them. They've they've been put in the position of power and authority over their children. That's the reality for you and me. Moses is, is acknowledging and recognizing in an implied sense that we are a people who are under submission. We aren't calling all of the shots. We're, we're not the people who rule the roost. Now, the reason that this is important and the way this really shows up in the psalm is through an unsettling figure. You see, I told you the math was going to get complex. You know, so far, you're tracking with me pretty well. I, I can see it. You understand how he's revealing God, how he's revealing man. You can get the power and authority piece. But notice where Moses really centers his attention in Psalm 90. It's under a certain exercise of God's power and authority. So You see, this is the third figure of truth that must be brought into the math that we're doing together today. It's this, that God is angry towards men. God is angry towards men. You, you likely saw that, didn't you, in the reading of Psalm 90? It actually, to be quite honest, was the most pervasive note in the whole of the psalm. I, I told you, those sections that you memorized, right? You know, Lord, teach us to number our days so that we might get a heart of wisdom. We may live 70 years of due strength, 80, those that you've heard at a variety of funerals. You, you haven't heard the passages on wrath and anger, have you? Those aren't cross-stitched on your wall at home. And yet they're essential to the whole argument that Moses is presenting here in Psalm 90. Part of the prayer and the hymn book of the Old Testament is to understand the power of God as revealed in God's anger, in his, in his wrath. Now here's why some of you may, may be thinking to yourself, well, this is unsettling. I was hoping not to see this turn in the sermon. Well, I'm with you. I get it. Because if we have an eternal and creator God whose power and authority we're under and he's angry with us, this is not shaping up to end well. You see, 
That's why there's concern here. And, and some of us may, even at this point in the midst of doing this math, maybe say to ourselves, well, that makes me very, very fearful. Well, part of me would like to say, in the, in the sweetest and most loving way possible, good. You know, listen, we live in a time where fear is considered a bad thing. You know, if you're fearful of something, don't be fear. Don't be fearful. Well, let, let me tell you, friends. When you look in the pages of the Scripture and you're paying really attention to the teaching of the Bible in fear, there's this thing called bad fear and there's this thing called good fear. Right? Bad fear is when you're afraid of things that you ought not to be afraid of. When you're anxious over the things of this world, as we were confessing earlier, and you're afraid about how things are going to... You don't need to be afraid about those things because your Heavenly Father's already assured you of His taking care of you with regards to those things. There's no reason to be afraid. But isn't that where your fear normally comes from? That's where bad fear comes in. But you know what Solomon says? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We're seeking wisdom here. All, all true wisdom here. Numbering our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. A, a, a holy and godly fear is to recognize that we are accountable in submission to a God who is a just and holy God. And who expresses a just and holy anger towards those who are out of accord of his will. And Moses is acknowledging that here. Now I'm not making this up. Look at, look at it. Verse 7. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. Or literally could be translated finished. He describes God as a God who is leveling the people of Israel in context. You sweep them away, verse 5 and 6, as with a flood. They're like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and, and withers. I must admit, I was, I was thankful to hear the, those rumbles of, of thunder early this morning because my grass needs water. It's July in Middle Tennessee. You, you go out early in the morning, the dew's still on the ground, there's a little bit of green. And then you go out by 2 o'clock and it's brown and crispy, Right? And so those rumbles of thunder this morning, yes, I know they woke you up. You're going to get a good Sunday afternoon nap. I know that. And don't fall asleep now, though. We've got important things to talk about. Don't, don't fall asleep. Um, that rain meant that it was going to come back. But you know in a day or two what's going to happen to that grass if it doesn't get rain. Psalm 90 is saying that's a lot like our lives. We're swept away like a flood, sudden disaster. Death comes upon us quickly. And notice... And notice the subject of these actions. You, speaking of God. He's bringing judgment upon the people of Israel as Moses speaks of it. Now, you remember that Moses, and we, we may talk about this a little bit more even next week, but Moses was given the very challenging role of leading the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt into the promised land, or at least up to the promised land, and he was the leader of the people of Israel during those 40 years of, of wandering. When the people had rejected God's promises and not trusted God's assurance that he had given the land of Canaan into their hands, they were just to go take it and to trust him to do the fighting for them. And they were like, listen, the people are huge. We're like grasshoppers in the sight of them. There's no way we can ever take them. And because of their disbelief, 40 years they wandered in the wilderness. And you know what? Moses wandered around in that wilderness for 40 years. And you know what he saw happen? An entire generation be swept away like a flood. He saw them wither like grass. 
because of the word and the judgment of God, because of the anger of God that is described in Exodus 32 as burning against the people of Israel. You see, when he says there in verse 7, in verse 9, in verse 11, this language of wrath and of anger, he's calling us to consider the very holy response of our God in light of disobedience to his law. In fact, he actually raises the question that one of the problems that so many of us experience in our lives are failures, we might say, to add in this calculation. He says there in verse 11, who considers the power of your anger? You should hear in that rhetorical question, is there anybody out there who is considering your anger? People are living as if, as if God's not going to hold them account. People are living as if judgment is not a real thing. As if God's anger and wrath are a, are a small moot point. He, he's raising that rhetorical question. And notice, interestingly, verse 11 gives way to verse 12. It says, if to prepare us for verse 12, therefore number your days. Consider his anger and his wrath. Number your days that you may get a heart of wisdom. It's meant to shake us into sobriety. Now, friends... You've known me for a long time. I don't usually camp out on God's anger and wrath unless the text demands that it's there. It's not a hobby horse that I just sit here and, 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 and love to revel in with you. But I'm telling you, I'm saying this to you today because of why Moses was saying it to the people of Israel in his day. It's because he loves the people of Israel. And God is saying it to us because he loves us. He wants to wake us up. He wants us not to be foolish. He wants us to do the math. He wants us to recognize the truth figures and to bring them into relationship with one another and draw the right conclusion. He doesn't want us to be like has been the case in the 20th and 21st century in the Western church. Those who resist preaching and teaching hard things just to talk about the love of God and make people feel peace. I said I was struck this week by looking at the revisions of the book of, of Common Prayer in the Anglican Church. In 1979, another edition of the Book of Common Prayer was put out, and this particular passage was noted as appropriate for funerals and is a part of the funeral service in the, in the Book of Common Prayer. The older editions had a fuller expression of Psalm 90, but in the 1979 edition, guess what? All of the verses associated with wrath are cut out, are edited out. Well, the sections on Life is hard, and we live 70 or 80 years. Teach us to number our days that we may get hard. Those are there. But the, the way to understand those passages are bracketed by this idea of wrath and anger. That eternal realities need to be calculated if you're going to truly have a heart of wisdom. You've got to know what it is you're facing if you're going to do the math. That's the point of Psalm 90. Now, I think it's really important that we don't rush past that. But then we acknowledge that the Scripture teaches this clearly from cover to cover. Listen, when you hear people say, oh, the God of the Old Testament, he's just so angry. He's just so mean. Well, you'll see some of the most benevolent and steadfastly loving passages that you'll find anywhere in the Bible in the Old Testament. And listen, if you don't, if you don't think he's angry also in the New Testament, you haven't read Revelation then. You're not paying attention to the end of time. Let's not, let's not paint with generalizations that don't, aren't, aren't true to the math of the Scriptures. God has been teaching us this from, from cover to cover. And listen, if you're sensing even now as I'm preaching and teaching about it, some sobriety sort of take over your heart and something of a heaviness 
that's there. Don't ignore that. That's the Spirit of the Lord doing His work. It is the tendency of the era in which we live to run to comfort as quickly as possible when we're uncomfortable. But listen, the deeper you stare into the realities of the math that is before us and come to the conclusion and its solution, let me tell you, the sweeter will it be. The sweeter will it be. You see, the fourth figure of truth that's given to us in Psalm 90 is really answering the question that I've hinted at already described somewhat in that third figure of truth is that fourthly, we have to ask the question, why is God angry? (laughs) Why is God angry? I mean, maybe some of you in this room are actually saying to yourself, see, I knew God was just always angry. He's 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 just an old grumpy man. He's capricious up there. He's ready to squash us at any point. Some of us hold God like that in kind of the recesses of our minds. See, I knew it, Pastor. I see that you're telling me that today. Well, listen, let me encourage you don't skip the steps in the math problem. You know what happens when you skip steps in math problems? You get it wrong. Don't assume things about the character of God yet. All you're seeing is the expression of God's anger. We haven't yet gotten to why in the fullness of the sense of the word, but Psalm 90 doesn't leave you hanging there. Look at verse 8. You have set our iniquities before you and our secret sins in light of your presence. There it is. God is not being capricious here. His anger is not unfounded. What is set before him? Our sins. Now, as you think about your, your sins for just a minute, I mean... I think very, very often the way we think about sin, isn't it, primarily having to do with something that's kind of personal, it's something I did wrong, or, or it's, at, it's relational, it's something I did that may have hurt someone else. Don't we tend to sort of center our discussions in sin right around those dynamics? That's usually how we do the, the matrix of sin. We think of it as a personal wrongdoing or we think of it as doing something wrong against someone else. Well, there, that is true. There's biblical defenses for thinking about sin in that way, but let me tell you, that's never the first and primary way to understand the reality of sin. The Bible is unequivocal on this, that sin is first and foremost against God. It's a personal offense to God. Now, when you hear that, some of you are going, I didn't, I didn't mean to personally offend God. You know, when I, when I did that thing, I, I was actually just wanting to do it for me. I, I didn't have anything. I actually didn't even think of him when I was doing it. That was part of the problem. That was part of the issue. Do you see, I'm going to back off what I said earlier. There's nothing I said earlier. There's a qualitative difference between you and God, and there is in terms of kind. But God has so fashioned you and made you where you are a reflection of him. You have been made in His image, we're told, in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Do you know what that means? It means that your identity and your calling as a person is to be reflective in thought, word, and deed of the character and glory of God in every way. That's how God has fashioned you. That's that's how He's made you. You see, we live in a time where we'll say to ourselves, I'll come up with my own identity. I'll be whoever it is I want to be. I'll do whatever it is I want to to do. And the Bible says, actually, God has already given you an identity. And he has already called you to a calling. You are to glorify and enjoy him forever in all that you think, say, and do. This is why when you sin, it's never just personal. 
meaning just to do with you. It's never merely horizontal with someone else. It's first and primarily vertical. It's an offense against a holy God. Notice the strength in the way that Moses actually put it here in Psalm 90. He actually speaks of this, this sin. Verse 8, you have set your iniquities before you. They're in his presence. You are secret sins in the light of your presence. Now, if we were to translate that in the Hebrew, it would stick out even more. It literally means in your face. Our sins are flying in your face. That's what they're doing. Now, again, just because you and I don't think of sin that way doesn't make it right. We must pay attention to the way the Bible reveals it. Every single sin that we do flies in the pers as a personal offense against God. This was David's point in Psalm 51. You remember it. And he's writing that long confession hymn. And he's acknowledging his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and his masterminding of the murder of Uriah. And then he says in Psalm 51 verse 4, I have sinned against you and you only, O Lord. Some of us are going, I think he sinned against Bathsheba. Well, of course he did. I think he sinned against Uriah. You better believe he did. But the most important thing to David is that he has sinned against Almighty God. That's David's concern. That's his deepest concern. Do you see why it is that our confessions and our repentance are often so weak and superficial? It's because we've never had really significant thoughts of our offense towards God with our sin. It's never really registered with us. It's a light thing. I really was struck again by that language of secret sins, right? And not the things that everybody knows about you, right? The things that, things that nobody knows. The things that have been done in secret. Derek Kidner in his commentary on the Psalms even said it this way, which I thought was fascinating. He said, even the sins that are secret to you, meaning the sins that you don't even know you've done, even the sins that you might not even see right now as sin. <laughs> Isn't that true often in our lives as we grow older and we walk with the Lord? Our consciences are developed more fully often by the Word of God and things that used to not bother us now bother us appropriately so because we've grown in grace. Well, all the things that you've never even considered sin that are sin, He knows about them. And you thought, oh, well, I'm really undone now. Because I've always thought if I could at least confess my sin and make it known and repent of it as fully as I possibly can, at least then I'll be in the clear with God. But He's telling us here, you don't even know the half of it. This is some complex math. This is some hard math. In fact, it's so hard that the solution is the only solution that makes sense. It's the beginning of the solution. It's the beginning of the solution that's addressing the real issue in this psalm. Do you see, this psalm begins with the, the declaration that God is our dwelling place in, in all generations. A phrase that we'll come back to next week when we look at Psalm 90 again. But you know, most of this passage is really about us, I don't know, not dwelling with God. 
<laughs> Most of the passages is not about dwelling with God. And that really is the nation of Israel, isn't it? During the season of Moses, during the leadership of Moses. They're not really dwelling with God. They're tussling with God. They're wrestling with God. The, the question that's really arising in this question is, how do we really dwell with God? How does that happen? And it leads us to this question where we begin to realize in verse 13 that there's nothing we can do. If we do all of the math here, we come to the conclusion there's nothing we can do. Which is why verse 13 begins to take us into a prayer. We might even say a plea. The cry of a heart. Look at verse 13. Return, O Lord, how long have pity on your servants. Now what's going on here? Well, if you take the four calculations of truth, that our God is an eternal and creator God, that we are mortal creatures, that God is angry towards us because of our sin, those four pieces together, and we realize that He knows all of our secret sins, He knows all the sins that we wouldn't even call sin, then you begin to ask yourself in your head, how can this ever be right? And the implicit answer of verse 13 is, there is nothing you can do. That's the answer. That's, the, that's implied in verse 13. There's nothing you can do. You can't make this right. The only thing you can do is cry for mercy. All you can do is cry for mercy. Return, O Lord. Have pity. The word is literally have compassion. Have compassion on us. The language that he's describing there is turn. He's saying change your posture towards us. Relent from how you've been standing against us in anger. Present to us a posture of pity. It's all we can do is cry for mercy. And remarkably, in the days of Israel, that's exactly what God in His faithfulness did. After His judgment and the new generation of the Israelites arose and under the leadership of Joshua, they crossed the Jordan River into the land of Canaan. And you remember Joshua shaking in his boots saying, Listen, I ain't going into there if you ain't going with me. And God says, I'm with you. And He looks upon the hills and the heavenly hosts are the army of God who are about to come in and lay low the Canaanites. It wasn't by bow. It wasn't by sword. It was by the man, hand of Almighty God. Joshua was learning, but for God. But for God. God was faithful to His people of Israel. He relented. He gave mercy. He showed up. He returned. And He redeemed His people. But you know what's going to happen. You know the story. You know your Old Testament. They're going to leave Him a gazillion more times. And fall under judgments and exiles too many to number. And we see in the cycle of the math that a bigger answer needs to be given. A more significant answer. A weighty answer that can resolve the complexity of the equation. And ultimately what we see is what's embedded in Psalm 90. These doctrinal truths begin to come together in the person of Jesus Christ. What do I mean by that? Well... Listen, friends, when you begin to see the futile 
efforts of man to maintain his relationship with God. And you see the mercy of God is absolutely what we need. And the only thing that is our hope. You begin to realize we need a better man than the men of the world. We need the creator God who is eternal to become, as it were, a mortal creature. We need the two to become one. And that's exactly what happens in the person of Jesus Christ. In the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God himself becomes a man. He returns in mercy and pity upon us. And he comes, right, to satisfy the third figure of truth. To satisfy the anger and the wrath of God on our behalf. He comes on the cross to receive the sin of his people. And to drink the cup of God's wrath all the way to the, to the dregs. That's what he did. He received and satisfied the anger of the Lord. That's what he did. And he removed then. Of all those who are trusting alone in Christ Jesus for salvation, He removes the barrier of sin as He clothes us into the righteousness of Christ. Do you see the math that is cyclical throughout the Old Testament is resolved not merely in a figure, but in a person, in a better man, a man for mankind. The God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see how is it that we could dwell with God in all generations? Only if God in His grace and pity will come and dwell with us. Only if He will make a way. And my friends, He has made a way. Maybe today as you look at your own life or you look at the circumstances surrounding your life and you're wondering, there is no way. <laughs> there is no way. There is no, there is no out. There is no exit. Probably not with you. The beginning of the solution to whatever it is that we are facing in this life, to the biggest problems of our life, which is the anger of God and His wrath towards sin, is to cry unto Him for mercy. Is to cry unto Him for mercy. That's where it is. That's the answer. It's the beginning of the answer that Moses gives us here. Whether you have done that one time or whether this today would be the thousandth time or the hundred thousandth time that you've done so, listen, my friends, that's where it's at. When you come to the math and you begin to realize the complexity is resolved, when we come to the God-man, He is the one who has made a way between God and man. He is the mediator, the way, the truth, and the life. Friends, as we consider Psalm 90 together and as we pursue a heart of wisdom, I hope that as you hold that reality before your heart right now, I pray it becomes to you something that sticks into Monday and Tuesday and the rest of the week. Because you'll begin to learn that what the Lord is showing you here is actually what makes meaningful everything else that goes on. And as we look into the recesses of the prayers next week, I think you'll see that. That God is at work in you if you're in Him. And eternity hangs in the balance. Let us, by God's grace, live by the light of eternity. And find Jesus right there with us. Loving us and caring for us. And carrying us to the end. Father in heaven, we would pray that you do just that in Christ right now for us. 
inscribe on the tablets of our hearts these truths and loosen up our hearts to cry the cry of mercy, the cry for pity. Lord, help us to know that that's not weakness, that's strength. That's the work of revelation. That's your wisdom. It's foolish to remain tight-lipped when our situation is dire and there's nothing we can do to rescue ourselves. Where do we look for help? My eyes look to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And Lord, right now I pray, would you please remake us in your presence? And would you set eternity in our hearts? That its light might be our light. Always. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.